Welcome back to the Exchange for Entrepreneurs podcast. I'm your host, James Black. And this week, we welcome back Alex Tapscott, co-founder of the Blockchain Research Institute. And today, we talked to Alex about all things blockchain, decentralized finance, and Web3. And really, it's a carry-on conversation from, I can't believe it, but almost back from 2019 when we first interviewed Alex on uh, our program here um, about why he wrote uh, initially or co-authored the book, The Blockchain Revolution. And uh, he's on the precipice of launching a new book, Web3. And uh, we get into a bunch of topics, but primarily trying to decode what had happened uh, recently with the fall of FTX, the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, and what that really means um, for the world of decentralized finance and you know what role crypto assets played in all of this. So uh, it's a big topic set. It's a lot to digest. Alex is obviously welcome back on the show to, to dig further in some of these topics, especially as he gets closer to launching his book. But um, please listen to this podcast today. And if you want to go back, I'll put in the notes uh, my original interview from 2019 with Alex. And uh, I think the two together provide a great synopsis of what is happening in the blockchain industry, where it may be going, and some of the practical implications of the technology in today's terms. So without further ado, my interview with Alex Tapscott, please enjoy. Mr. Alex Tapscott, Alex from the Blockchain Institute, how are you doing today? I'm great, James. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Cool. Well, I see uh, just just by viewing you on the screen here today, you are actually at the Blockchain Institute, which I believe is in downtown Toronto. Is that correct? The Blockchain Research Institute is based in downtown Toronto and has offices also in four continents spread around the world. Okay, that's a good segue because I want to know. So there's a lot to talk about today, but um, you are a well-traveled man. You get to go around the world. You've written some books. You talk about the blockchain revolution. You talk about decentralized finance, which will be sort of the corner that we'll, we'll, we'll park ourselves in today because obviously we're a stock exchange. Um, I want to know about some of your recent travels and why you're being asked still after all these years since 2016 when your first book was published to talk about the blockchain and what its impact can be uh, on the world and on finance. Well, there are a couple of ways to answer that question, but yeah. the, the first and most obvious way is that everything that we talked about in the book uh, five or six years ago is happening in the world today. Like when we wrote the book Blockchain Revolution, the entire market had a value of maybe eight or nine billion dollars. And today it's about one and a half, one and a quarter to one and a half trillion dollars. Um, and that's including, you know, the downturn that we've seen in some of these assets. So obviously uh, the underlying technology of blockchain has enabled all of these assets into existence. Um, and that has created enormous value and created a lot of new organizations and some disruption. And that's something that is acted as like a huge tailwind to everything that I've done, which is that basically the thesis has been more or less correct. Now, better lucky than smart. I'm not saying I was the only one who, who predicted <laughs> it, but, um, you know, I, I, we put forth a, an idea for the big themes and ideas that could drive a lot of change in the world. And, and a lot of those things have come true. The other thing that's really relevant, though, to this question is that it's not like there are all these places all over the world where people are trying to learn about blockchain and I'm the only one who can tell them. It's, if anything, it's, it's the other way around which is that unlike previous eras of technology innovation, uh, the U.S. Yeah. is not the only place where this is happening or, or, or you know, the traditional idea of the, the so-called developed world. Um, innovation is happening, happening to everything, everywhere, all at once, to paraphrase the mm -hmm. Oscar-winning film. Um, and if anything, for me, these travels are kind of like 
you know, tra- time travel. Like I get to get in an airplane and visit all these alternate futures of what the world might look like. I went to Istanbul last fall where a lot of people prefer to store and move money in digital assets like stable coins and Bitcoin than they do their local currency because the local currency is hyperinflationary and the, and the banking system is unreliable, for example. And mm. um, my hosts there who are, you know, corporate executives from banks and other firms were more knowledgeable, far more knowledgeable <laughs> than their counterparts here in Canada. Um, I was in Dubai and the UAE uh, two weeks ago where um, the one of the neighboring Emirates, Abu Dhabi, just announced a $2 billion fund to support Web3 innovation. And in Dubai, I'm going to be um, educating the prime minister's office and their bureaucrats about blockchain, which is part of their effort to teach, you know, key people in government about new technologies, whether it's AI or, or blockchain or something else. Um, you know, wh- where else have I been? I was in South Africa uh, 10 days ago where I was meeting with uh, entrepreneurs that are trying to, you know, bootstrap new kinds of companies in the world's poorest continent, but where I think there's a lot of hope for the future. I mean, this is a continent that's digitally native. It's very young. It's connected. And uh, in Africa, as one person said to me, people innovate out of necessity. And so I think it could be the breeding ground for a lot of new stuff. So, yeah, I, I am going there um, to, to talk about blockchain, to, to you know, uh, meet with people, to, you know, build relationships and partnerships. But I'm, I'm learning more than, than I'm giving at this point. <laughs> in a no, fair enough. I mean, that's, that's traveling. It opens your eyes to a whole new world. And uh, it's a big world out there. Um, so let's talk then about that juxtaposition between North America and the world. You said, you know, if things are a little more sophisticated, perhaps on the topic of blockchain elsewhere. Um, obviously, in the fall, um, you can watch the clip on BNN. It's uh, post FTX collapse. Um, you know, you can go back and read that story. We don't need to rehash it here. But obviously, uh, a lot of things branched off from that story when it comes to the blockchain and particularly crypto. And obviously, FTX and its demise was a bit of a, um, I don't know if a wake-up call is the right term, but um, it, it kind of shook the foundation of, of the crypto world. And I want to know why that wasn't the end of crypto, why FTX falling apart wasn't the end of crypto or you know um, decentralized finance in North America. Maybe let's use that as a jump-off point because it seems to me that the use case elsewhere in the world for decentralized finance and crypto assets and stable coins is, is pretty clear, especially in inflationary environments, less stable uh, governments. But in North America... We have stable banking system. We just had FTX collapse. Why is there still a crypto life lifespan here? What's going on? Well, in Canada, we can still say with a straight face that we have a stable banking system. But I don't, I'm not sure our friends in the U.S. are still saying that today after what's happened over the last seven or eight days. Oh, I for mean, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we the, can argue that another time. But but in general terms, globally, it's stable. We'll see what's going to happen post SVB. But yes, uh, my question still stands. <laughs> I think, yeah. No, the question is a good one. Um and I think it's more, you know, in, in certain parts of the world, we have, we have access to some financial tools that make uh, our lives um, much easier than, than, than for a lot of people in other parts of the world. The fact that we have an access to a bank account or, for that matter, an identity, a way to prove who we are uh, in order to unlock services, whether it's from our government or our banks or other entities in society, those are things that we don't even think about here in Canada. But for other people, it's... Um, you know, it's, they're woefully underserved in that respect. So uh, it's true that being able to, you know, access a way to move money, store money and access credit 
without needing a bank account or, or a driver's license or a passport to be able to, you know, bootstrap an identity online and to, you know, unlock these kinds of things. That's something that's hugely powerful for a lot of people. And it doesn't need to be in places where the local currency is hyperinflationary or where the banking system is like super corrupt, though certainly that helps. And, uh, you know, frankly, for most people in the world, some combination of those things is is the norm, right? Uh, unless you're living in like Western Europe, Canada, the US, New Zealand, you know, Thai, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, or, you know, Iceland, um, that mm-hmm. is a problem that you have to deal with, right? Uh, and so I think that acts as a huge tailwind. You know, the FTX is, uh, was a wake up call, I think, for a lot of people in the industry. I think that the collapse of FTX revealed that a lot of uh, VC investors were, um, investing unthinkingly into a lot of things based on FOMO or, or based on perception without doing real due diligence. I think that um, a lot of people were, were getting too obsessed with, um, you know, hero founders, hoping that individuals could be the people that drove, you know, big, big change in this industry. And as they did in Web2 with like people like Zuckerberg and, and um, Dorsey and others that maybe we were supposed to have our own crop of, you know, superstars. Uh, I think that's a dangerous thing to to get seduced by. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that exchanges, which are supposed to be an on-ramp or, or sort of facilitator for an industry, actually became the industry um, in a lot of respects. I mean, ultimately... The fact that people confuse DeFi or, or crypto with web, with FTX itself, I think, is evidence of that. Um, yeah. Of course, like the collapse of FTX is not the collapse of a blockchain or the collapse of an asset per se, uh, or at all, actually. It's the collapse of a company that was engaging in risky and probably fraudulent behavior and in the end um, ended up going bankrupt, right? Which is something that we've seen in many other industries throughout history. Um, and, you know, honestly... Um, sometimes big frauds and big um, setbacks can actually alter the course uh, and the innovation in a, in a technology and even in a really promising technology. I mean, even the collapse of like the Three Mile Island or the, the sort of mini meltdown of Three Mile Island basically changed the trajectory of nuclear power in, mm. in the United States and, and Chernobyl basically caused the denuclearization of Europe, which is still a process that, that's ongoing. But there's lots of other innovations where, you know, frauds didn't derail things. Uh, the South the South Sea uh, Corporation was a massive fraud, a huge bubble. And for 100 years, the government banned the formation of new companies, which definitely set things back. But ultimately, companies went on to be the way in which sort of wealth was created in the economy. You know, the collapse of Enron didn't kill the energy market. Um, train derailments in the 19th century, which killed dozens of people, didn't kill the railroads. I mean, you can go through um, all of these different examples of whether the the failure a failure by unscrupulous business people um, when wielding new technologies or new tools changed the course of those those uh, tools but didn't um, you know kill them certainly um, and I think that ultimately if the underlying technology is useful and people um, are are you know curious about building on it and doing interesting stuff then it's going to continue to scale. Right. So look at finance for a sec. So we've had a bit of a bubble as a result of basically zero interest environment through COVID. And now, um, obviously, things have come home to roost because of uh, highly escalating or quickly escalating interest rates. And that led to, in part, the catastrophe at SVP uh, to a lesser extent, but most likely contributed to the fall of Credit Suisse and being bought out for pennies on the dollar by UBS. Yeah. Now we're in a situation where you got you got two kind of uh, benchmark events that happened a very short period of time, the fall FTX, which you said was mostly malfeasance and not directly correlated to the, the assets underlying what they held, but it was, um, it was still, you're always going to have that, that discussion, right? Of 
correlation. But now you've got you know traditional banking, though. Look at SVB; it's more of an innovative sector, innovation sector bank. Uh, and Credit Suisse was just you know more or less you know how can you get more banky than Swiss? But the point being is you've got these two events now, and you're looking at you as a thought leader in decentralized finance and talking to all these people in the world. Um, has anything shifted or changed for you, or been basically? Uh, reiterated through all this that this is why my thinking in this space um, matters or, or the technologies we're looking at really now matter even more than ever. Yeah. Well, I think that there is a comparison to be made between SBV and FTX, but I think it's a very tenuous connection. Like I, I, I worry <laughs> about people who are drawing too many comparisons between these two things. But um, I want to clarify something that that you just said, which is that mm-hmm. You know, it's true that in FTX's case, there was malfeasance, most likely. Seems mm-hmm. like that way based on the criminal charges that have been <laughs> the founder. I'm no uh, lawyer. I'm no lawyer. <laughs> uh, I'm no yeah. lawyer, but they usually don't bring those kinds of charges unless they have a pretty good idea of what's going yeah. on. Um, but also, you mentioned the underlying assets. You know, both of those things can be true. Like, I think that the fact that um, the crypto market declined as much as it did and mm. reduced the value of a bunch of their assets um, required them to sell more assets to build up collateral, right? And and so you get this sort of death spiral. That That's something that, that did occur as well. So both of those things did occur in an FTX. But what's really interesting is like, there's a difference between the value of an asset and the usefulness of the asset or the tool, right? So yeah. in, in SPV's case, the problem is that they took a bunch of short-term deposits and bought long-duration bonds. And so their bond portfolio was underwater to the tune of billions of dollars because when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. Uh, like anybody who's done the one course in finance is probably the first thing you learn about. And, mm-hmm. and so you know their portfolio was underwater. And sure, maybe they shouldn't have done that and that was bad risk planning. But nobody is saying bonds are a bad idea. No one is saying like the underlying asset of a bond is somehow at, to blame here because it declined because interest rates went up. And that's what's happening with, with FTX and with crypto, which is that people are conflating the failure you know, of a single institution of an FTX with, with like the underlying asset that they, uh, that they trade in or that they, yeah. that they you know, engage with as, as a company, right? And it's like Enron, like Enron went under and then they were you know, trading natural gas futures and building like energy plants and far-flung corners of the earth. No one's saying like a hydroelectric dam is to blame for Enron's failure, right? <laughs> or yeah, like, thank you for making the point for me more eloquently. That's that's sort of like what I was natural, trying to say. Yeah. Natural gas is to blame yeah. for Enron's failure or something. Like the two are completely unrelated in, in a way. So the, the only way that they are related is that, you know, when technology tools um, uh, evolve faster than regulations, uh, the regulator's ability to, to sort of cope with them. And in the in that absence, you get a, what's called a regulatory vacuum. And in the vacuum, there's all sorts of uncertainty. And when there's uncertainty, what happens is a lot of companies decide, well, I'd rather not be subject to those regulations. And so they start to engage in, um, you know, offshoring their business or, or in the case of Venron and a whole bunch of like financial trickery, which ultimately gets them into trouble. And I think in FTX's case, it was the, it was the former, right? It was, yeah. okay, it, until that there's clarity on how the government, um, how the regulators feel about all of these assets, we're going to domicile ourselves offshore. So what's this, this leads me to like another point, which is, you know, the, the, I don't want to blame regulators for the fail of, failure of FTX. So the, those two things are not related. But it's true that like if the U.S. were more proactive in creating a workable framework for companies to operate in the United States, that it's that it would be it would have been more likely that 
U.S. customers would have engaged with regulated platforms. Because a lot of the regulated platforms couldn't offer the same amount of services as the offshore platforms, a lot of users took great pains to move their money into these other platforms. And that put them outside of the protection, so to speak, of the regulatory system. So that's one thing that could be changed. But I think to your to the earlier point, the bigger challenge is how do we get people to de-emphasize um, using centralized uh, exchanges in the first place. You know what? Are, what are what are what are these assets? Like, what makes them useful? Like, why do I? Why am I so interested by this? It's the ability to move and store value in a peer-to-peer, frictionless, and private way. It's the ability to like store and build wealth in an asset that is digitally native, that is not part of the legacy financial system. It's a you know it's a frontier. The token is a new. Um, vehicle to program value in all sorts of creative ways, whether it's to impact financial assets and stock markets like what you deal with, or if it's art and collectibles, or if it's you know virtual goods. This is the area that's so interesting to me. And I, I accept the fact that there needs to be these centralized exchanges for people to move, for, for example, fiat currency into digital assets in order to get started in this space, or maybe as a custodian for some of their assets because they don't want to hold them all, um, you know, themselves. I get that that's a barrier uh, for um, adoption for some uh, people. And I know people who are like that, and I don't dispute that. But we've got to de-emphasize these exchanges and turn them back into the support infrastructure that they are always intended to be, rather than as these too-big-to-fail institutions in, in the industry. That's something that doesn't serve anybody. No, it certainly doesn't. Um, <laughs> let's talk a bit about some of the use cases. And so um, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, transfer wealth and finance and currency. But what are some of the other places as we go back to your world travels that people are really interested in leveraging blockchain and uh, decentralization around? So uh, one thing that came to mind, not to answer your question for you, but uh, music royalties is one I know you guys have written a bit of a paper on. But, um, you know, maybe elaborate on that or talk about some other places where you're really seeing uh, application of the blockchain in a way that uh, is really evol- uh, evolving um, the the way we transfer wealth and store store information. Yeah, well, um, th- thank you for bringing up music royalty. <laughs> it's a funny it's a funny thing because I actually just interviewed uh, an entrepreneur named Roniel Rumberg, who's the founder of Audius, which is a user owned music streaming platform that uh, has. I think um, seven and a half million monthly active users and over 250,000 artists on the platform. And basically it's part of a new breed of, of organization that I think is going to be increasingly popular in the economy. And that's the idea of like a user owned software or user owned um, network. Right. So um, one of the superpowers of web three is that you can turn your users into owners and owners care more. Owners have an economic stake. Owners have a say in governance. And owners are less likely to abandon something than people who are just visiting, right, or just renting. And hmm. so it creates this really powerful um, uh, sort of way to to get people to engage more in the applications that they're using. So the idea with Audius is simply that you know people get compensated in the native token, the more value they contribute. So artists that get lots of streams that publish lots of music are going to earn more proportionately 
than um, you know a person who's just streaming music, uh, you know, and listening to music. Even though they do add value by being a fan, they're creating value for that network. And we're seeing this also playing out in so many other a- aspects of the economy. Um, you know, I just did an interview for our podcast with the founder of Hive Mapper, which is basically this uh, really interesting business that it's at the intersection of, of um, Web three and and uh, the Internet of Things. You the the business is essentially you get a dash cam, you put it in your car, and as you're driving around, it's collecting information about street level uh, views and, and other um, mapping data. And they're building a decentralized community owned um, map that is going to be an API that people can and businesses can plug into rather than relying on Google as single source. Uh, another really interesting one is the render network, which harnesses uh, GPU latent GPUs, so graphic processing units. So basically, like if you're mm-hmm. like, People listening to this podcast, I don't know how old you are, but either you maybe you're a video gamer or maybe your kids are or whatever. If you have a PC with a GPU, you basically mm-hmm. have like a supercomputer on your desk. And those GPUs can be used to do all sorts of really creative stuff, including rendering, um, you know, computer animation in real time. And the render network harnesses all this GPU power um, to, you know, help Hollywood studios render movies or um, TV shows or artists to create NFTs and all this really cool stuff. And so as a as a as a person contributing GPU power, you're going to earn a piece of that network. You're going to become a user owner of that software, and I think that's really powerful. So whether it's you know a, a music publishing platform, uh, a mapping a data mapping uh, company, or whether it's you know a decentralized uh, rendering network, uh, which is what that is, there's all these new models to. Uh, engage to to get people to pool their resources so that they can own a piece of the pie. And to me, like that is an incredibly powerful um, uh, sort of economic incentive that I think is going to drive a lot of new new experiments and organizations. So that's one. Um, in terms of you know what I see on my travels, it really depends on where I'm traveling to. <laughs> like when of course, I was, yeah, yeah. When I was in Istanbul, like when I'm in Istanbul, it's all about tether and bitcoin it's all about ways to store and move money to get money in and out of the country to keep it outside of the banks like that's what people care about they're like you know the, all this other stuff i've just described they they might be interested in it intellectually but um what they're really curious about is you know the the financial toolkit that allows them to operate outside of uh the banking system frankly um but if i'm in thailand which uh is a place that i've also visited in my travels it's very much you know, how do I plug into some of these new organizations that I've just described to maybe lend my time or my energy or my my talents to earn a share of something, right? To actually participate in some wealth creation, which is why play to earn games, basically games where as part of the gameplay, you can actually earn assets that were worth something, um, was extremely popular in places like the Philippines and Thailand, because people there are underbanked and underemployed. And so they're hustlers. They're looking for ways to make money, which, you know, people who are fat and happy like me in Canada, I wouldn't think to play a video game to make some extra money. But that's something that other people might care about. So it always depends on which country you're talking about. Um, but it's what's what's so in, encouraging about the whole thing and to me so fun is that, you know, there's all these different ways that you can engage with Web3. It's not this monolithic thing. And I think a lot of people um, are still coming to terms with that. Right. And so, Alex, you've done a great job segueing into my last second to last question, which is uh, you're writing a new book, um, which we'll link down below. You can pre-order it. It's called Web3, uh, available on Amazon and I assume other places where you can get uh, widely published uh, uh, documents such as this. Now, this is, I think, your third uh, mainline uh, nonfiction book that you've written or are in the process of writing. Um, 
fourth book where I've been an author, but it's actually the first book where I'm the sole author. Of the You're book. the sole author. Oh, this is a big one. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so the other what, one what, I'm most well known for is Blockchain Revolution, uh, which is a book I co-authored with my dad. Um, and this with book, Don Tapscott, yes, Don, yeah. the Don Tapscott. <laughs> um, oh, you're the Alex Tapscott. So, right. why, why, why Web three? Why this book? Why this year? Um, just give us the quick sizzle on it. Well, I would say that a lot of the things that we've talked about, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the things that have happened in the last little while, uh, especially the collapse of FTX, filled me with a new sense of urgency in a way yep. to to really try and wipe the mud off the windshield and and clarify. Uh, and explain what's really going on here for a mainstream audience. I think that uh, when Blockchain Revolution came out, a lot of the topics that we were discussing were hypothetical, frankly, because the technology was so new. And now, with the benefit of years of innovation and trial and error and, and successes and failures, there's so much more to discuss. And there's so many more ways in which this is impacting our world. And so the book is written for anybody who cares about the future. You know, um, the book is called Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Mm. And the choice of the word frontier was was quite deliberate. You know, um, there have been many frontiers throughout human history. Uh, some frontiers require uh, huge amounts of capital or, you know, require you to be an expert like climbing Mount Everest or traveling to, the, to Mars. But the most, uh, the most bountiful of frontiers are the ones that are typically forged by everyday people who, because of, you know, economic circumstance or because they're seeking better world or better opportunity, pick up and, and explore for themselves. And that's what I think of Web3 as. This is a new frontier. And it's not something where it's like experts only, right? Anybody yeah. who cares about this, whether you're a student and you're considering a new your first career move, or you're an executive and you want to understand how this impacts your business or your industry, or you're a politician or a government leader, and you're trying to figure out how to set the conditions for, you know, the innovation economy to to thrive in your country, all of these different things, um, you need a guide, right? In a new frontier and then unexplored land, it's helpful to have a pocket guide. And with humility, that's what I hope this book becomes. Pocket guides, how many pages are you anticipating? Well, it's like a 300-page pocket. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Big pocket. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It'll be well worth the read. And uh, so last question, I, I typically ask our guests this because I think it, um, I can see your lineage from you, from Don to yourself. And uh, obviously, um, you know, those who uh, you hope to influence throughout the world uh, while you're here and maybe when you're gone. Um, these books are part of a legacy that you're building. And, and maybe you've already kind of touched on it, you know, the new frontier in the future. And, and this is why you're writing the book, but maybe just touch on uh does your legacy motivate you to do this? Are you wanting to build your legacy through your education of the blockchain and Web3? Is this um, part of the the thing you're trying to leave behind? And uh, yeah, maybe just elaborate on that because I always find it... We always get interesting answers when people talk about their legacy. I've never thought about my legacy um, <laughs> at all. But what I do yeah. think about now, and especially in the last couple of years, is what kind of impression, you know, my kids have of me, you know, when I first started this journey, I didn't have kids. So now I have kids. So that's something that I think you start to think a little bit more when you have children. And, you know, I, I won't care what society thinks of me when I'm dead, because I'll be dead. It won't matter. <laughs> but but I, w- I do care today about how my, my, you know, my kids perceive me. And I want them to, to see someone who's, you know, trying to to live a principled life of consequence. That's, you know, 
um, want, like, I, I want to be successful and live a happy life and chill out and like the rest of you. <laughs> like, I'm not, not highfalutin in that respect, but it, whatever I'm doing for it to be, you know, purposeful, for there to be some meaning to it, you know, beyond just making a buck. And also, um, that in, in the end, it, it, it has, it changes the world in some positive way. Right. Um, and that's not for me, it's for them more than anything else. Um, and I hope that that's an example that they lead from. It's certainly one that I, that I got from my parents and, and it's helped inspire me on my way. No kidding. Well, that's well said. I'll, uh, we'll leave on that note, but Alex, I can't wait to read the book. Um, obviously you can't wait to, um, see what, what's, what's written in there and, uh, what I can learn from it and, and possibly share with the people I work with. And, um, uh, I just want to leave people with the thought that, you know, currently right now you can go to the Blockchain Research Institute website. There's a plethora of great thought papers on there that uh, I believe are free. You can just sign up as a member and you can go on. And uh, I think they're great. You've also got, uh, obviously, events that you do throughout the year. So, um, Alex, uh, next place people should catch you before the book comes out. Well, you can uh, follow all the updates on Twitter. I'm pretty active at Alex Tapscott. And also check out um, our weekly newsletter. So you can sign up at digital.ninepoint.com. Yeah. Every week we do quantitative analysis, summarize the big news events. I write an essay and we also uh, include a link to our weekly podcast, which you can also check on YouTube. It's called DeFi Decoded. So lots of content coming your way if you want to engage with me. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Alex. Thank you for your time. Good luck. And we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks. Thank you again for listening to the Exchange for Entrepreneurs podcast, a proud presentation from CNSX Markets, Inc., operator of the Canadian Securities Exchange. As a reminder, the viewpoints on this show do not reflect those of the exchange and are solely those of the guests and do not constitute investment advice. For more information about the exchange, its services, and listed companies, please visit www.thecsc.com. Until the next show, thank you for listening, and don't forget to hit the like or subscribe button on your favorite listening platform. Thank you so much.